0: You know, kind of the three anchor points for the study is to, first of all, understand the blessing. Amen. Remember he said, blessed is he that reads. Amen. The book. So that's the first key. The first key is to read the book. Um, And and I think that's why Jesus gave it to us, to to read it. Um, Not so much as to always try to figure out what everything is, but just to read it because the book is about him you know it says it is the revelation of jesus christ not antichrist amen everybody always wants to tackle this book to think it's talking about you know all the uh the the things that the devil is is doing in the earth but no it's the thing that jesus christ is doing in the earth amen and so um so that's why we're blessed when we read, because we read and we understand, hey, we win, amen? Yeah. We win. Yeah. Praise God. No matter what we're going through, at the end of the day, we come out as overcomers, amen? Yeah. We're the overcomers. Um, the other thing it says is, and they that hear the words. I think it's important that we hear the words as well, because we know, the Bible tells us, that faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing. Praise God. There's something powerful about hearing the very words of God. And um, and then the last thing is, is blessed are those who keep those things that are written in the word. Okay, written in this book, keeping those things that it tells us to do, but also keeping the word true. Don't add to and don't take away from the word. Amen. Amen. You know, one of the biggest mistakes that we have in church history is men get puffed up in their knowledge and their philosophy, and they try to decide what they think the word means. And we said from day one, I'm a literalist. The best thing you can do with this book is to take it literally word for word. Amen. God took great care over church history to preserve this word, man. If you study the, the authors and the different people that you know God used to write this holy book, and you look at the way God preserved this holy book just to get it in the English language for us, how dare man be puffed up enough to think that he could actually decide what he chooses is right? in what is wrong. God is able and has been able to preserve his word. He has never let us down in preserving his word. Amen. Um, Speaking of preserve, let's let's go to that uh, scripture real quick. Psalms 12, verse seven. This is a good one to underline here. This is, I hang my hat on this verse when it comes to opening up my Bible. And we can trust that the word of the Lord is sure um, Psalm 12 verse six. It says, "The words of the Lord are pure words. Amen. They're pure words. Amen? As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, And thou shalt keep them, O Lord, and shall preserve them from this generation and forever praise god the lord has promised to preserve his word for every generation and when he says preserve that means keep unchanged you can rest assured that the bible that i hold in my hand is the preserved word of god amen because just like in the garden the number one thing that Satan tries to do, and he's really trying to do it in our day as well, is to get people questioned, hath God said? Can you really be sure God said that? Yes, I can be sure God said that. Why? Because he promises to preserve his word, amen. He's not gonna change it. Now, you guys know how I'm a big King James fan, and uh, this is just coincidence, but I like how he says in Psalm 12, he has purified it seven times. Actually, the King James Version Bible, if you trace, if you do some Bible, how we got our Bible history, is actually the seventh English Bible. And you know, a lot of the other Bibles like the Geneva Bible and the Bishop's Bible and all the different first translations um, um, that came out, you know, that you can find them, all right, but they're not in mass print. They're in probably in a museum somewhere. But this Bible has been translated over and over for over 400 years. Yes, amen. Over and over for 400 years. Why do people keep coming back to it? I don't know. But I know when I read this book, something happens in my soul. I grow. And you will too. And you have been. So praise God. So we have to keep the words. Don't be like, those academics that try to philosophize or use philosophy to, you know, hmm, what do you think this is saying? I don't have to think about what it's saying. I just read and know what it's saying. It's already told me what it's saying because it's right there written. You don't have to be, hmm, you know, well, I think he was maybe saying this or, oh, maybe I think he was saying that. That's philosophy. You can't do that. All that stuff came out of Egypt and we... We say, speak to the hand, amen? Talk to the hands. So, all right, book of Revelation, here we go. So remember, those are, our three, those are our three starting points in the book. One, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not Antichrist. Number two, blessed that you read, hear, and keep. And then the last one, which I think is pretty cool, unlike any other book in Scripture, is the text actually gives us a division of the book in verse 19 of chapter 1 it says write the excuse me write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter and that that is a neat word that hereafter it's it's a it's kind of like an anchor point and what we see here is is like Write the things that thou hast seen. We covered that in chapter one last week when we spoke about the vision that John had of Jesus. All right. And we saw that in chapter one in verses um, nine through 18. And we saw that the Lord or the, 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 the scriptures had described the Lord in an awesome, amazing way. Amen. Um, you know, Jesus in his glory is totally different than our Sunday school paintings. Amen. He's he's a he's a lot different. And uh, and, I, and he's uh, like I said last week, he's a man's man. He's a he's, he's tough and strong and almighty. Amen. And um, the interesting thing about these characteristics of Jesus is, in verses uh, 12 through 18 is these are little identifiers all right like for instance in verse 12 of chapter 1 I turned to see a voice and I saw seven golden candlesticks and in the midst of those seven candlesticks one like unto the Son of Man with a garment down to his foot and his girt about his paps or his chest with a golden girl, and his head and hairs were white like wool, these descriptions of the Lord will be all through the book and and I love how the Holy Spirit gives us these little anchor points so we they 're like identifiers how, who we know whom the scriptures are speaking about amen and he actually you know when he speaks to the churches, he will use one of these descriptions. In his opening um, message with the churches. So, chapter one deals with write the things which you have seen, all right? And then chapters two and three deal with write the things which are, and that's the churches, all right? And then write the things which shall be hereafter, that's dealing with what comes after the churches. And that'll be chapters um, 6 through 19. And between that, we have the vision in the throne room of heaven, chapters 4 and 5, when John is taken up and he is shown the things which must come hereafter. All right. So so we're now we've quickly moved. There's not much in the first division, just one chapter. But we've moved very quickly through the things which are which are the seven churches. Now, the book of Revelation, it said that blessed are those that read here and keep the words of prophecy. All right. The book of Revelation is not a history book. It's not about events that have happened in the past, it's about prophecy. Um, and you know, when we talk about prophecy, there are two schools of thought here. If you turn with me real quick to over to the book of First Corinthians. And chapter one. First Corinthians chapter one. Say amen when you're there. And um, let's see. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, look at this. It says, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. So there are two schools of thought when it comes to determining prophecy. What the Jewish mindset is is to think of prophecy in patterns. Okay, Um, things that God does in the Bible are always according to patterns. Uh, The Greeks, they a Western mindset, is more about wisdom or information. They're more interested in the prediction and the fulfillment of that prediction. OK, but uh, but the school of thought to the Jew is one of patterns and it's the way the Holy Spirit has designed the entire Bible to think in ways of patterns. I can give you a good example of that if you go over to Genesis chapter. Uh, let's see. Genesis 22. With the, with Abraham and his son Isaac. All right. Genesis 22. And we can start it at verse 1. All right. Praise God. Now it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. All right. Now, you say, is God tempting? I thought you said James says, let no man say that God tempts. Different word. One is testing, all right? The other one is temptation of evil, all right? This is a test. God put Abraham to a test here, and it says, Abraham, he said, behold, here I am. Verse 2, and he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and get thee into a land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee. So Abraham rose up early in the morning, and verse four it says that on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And so Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with me, and. Abide here with with the ass, the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. All right. And so then Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it upon Isaac, his son. All right. In verse seven, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. He said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And so they both went together. And so you can see in this story, just talking about it, we could already see the gospel being preached there. The pattern that has already been laid in the Old Testament. You see Abraham, God telling Abraham, take thy son, thy only son, we know that Jesus was God's only son, amen. We know that he was, you know, he was a sacrifice. He was the lamb for us, just like, you know, Isaac called out for the lamb. Um, I like how, you know, they're walking up the hill and he's like, Father, behold the wood, but where's the sacrifice, you know? He's like, where's the sacrifice? And notice how Abraham, he said, God will provide. God will provide himself a lamb. And God has provided himself as the lamb. Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Amen. And so we see there the pattern that was laid for the sacrifice that God himself was going to provide. But we also see a hint of the resurrection there because Abraham told the other men, He said, I and the lad go yonder to worship and will come again to you. So God told him to sacrifice his son. Abraham's telling him, guys, me and my son are going over, but we will come back. And Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham, he knew The promises of God were for real. When God said through your son, Isaac, the seed will come from and the whole world will be blessed by Isaac. So Abraham said, look, if I offer Isaac up as a sacrifice and he dies on this altar, God is going to have to raise him up or how else will the word be fulfilled that God told me that through Isaac The whole world was going to be blessed, amen? So the gospel was being preached through the death, the sacrifice, and the resurrection, all right? The resurrection was being proved there. Go go with me. Let's read that together in Hebrews chapter 11 real fast. Hebrews chapter 11. So this is just the school of thought for, you know, how the bible speaks of patterns it's more than just oh such and such is going to happen on such and such a day you know a prediction and a fulfillment although that does happen but there's so much more that the lord is doing in his word than just giving information and that's all the greeks wanted was information they wanted wisdom So Hebrews 11 and um, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, see, he was tried, he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Of whom it was said, God said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Verse 19, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure, all right? So Abraham, by faith, knew that God was able to raise him up. And it's the same way that we, as, a, as, as children of God, we receive by faith that sacrifice and you receive by faith the resurrection. You know, we went to Jeff's dad's funeral today, you know, but Jeff's dad, is not in he's not there anymore to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord but the resurrection jeff's dad will be resurrected and he will receive a new body just like every one of us and this is something that needs to be grabbed by faith the same kind of faith that abraham had when he was willing to put isaac on the on the altar And the thing I love is it was almost like it says God tested him or tried him. You know, I think what God was trying to do there with Abraham, he was looked to and fro across the earth. And he's like, is there just one man on planet Earth that is willing to do what I'm going to do? Is there just one person that would be willing to make the same sacrifice that I'm willing to make with my only son? Amen. And there was praise God. And I'm so grateful for that. Praise God. So prophecy is all about different patterns. And we're going to see those patterns in a lot in the next couple of chapters. So here we are in chapter two. You probably thought we were never going to get there. Here we are in chapter two talking about the seven churches. All right. Honey, if you can put that map up there, that'd be great. I'd appreciate that. So the seven churches, we saw Jesus in chapter 1. He told John, write to the seven churches that are in Asia. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And this is a map here of... The area where when the Bible was first, when the gospel was first going out, around 90 years after Christ. Um, and uh, that sounds kind of funny saying after Christ. It's, you know, it's, it's actually uh, ADs. Uh, some people think it's after death, but it's really the year of our Lord in Latin, if I'm not mistaken. So about so around, around 90 A.D. and um, give or take. And so this is kind of like, this is, this is the area that was being reached for the gospel at the time. Um, you can see a couple of major uh, cities. Jerusalem, where it all started. Antioch was kind of the center now of, of, the, of what God was doing. The Bible tells us in Acts, it was at Antioch where they were first called Christians. At the time before that, they were just known as followers of the way. Amen? Of which way? The way. A lot of, The way of Jesus. A lot of people thought that the way was a cult. The Pharisees accused early Christians of being in a cult, followers of the way. And so there was... But we know it wasn't a cult. If anything, they were in a cult. And, um, and so Antioch... And then from Antioch, during Paul's ministry... excuse me the church began to get move out into Asia Minor and Ephesus became a real strong another strong uh, missionary ground for the church all right and there were you went that went out as far as Corinth and obviously you know over to Rome eventually and then Alexandria down there at the bottom in Egypt and um Take note of that. We're going to be talking about that city a little bit as we go through this book. But, you know, Egypt was always symbolic of what? The world, exactly. Egypt has always been symbolic of the world. And and so anytime, what's funny is anytime you, if you do a, a search for Alexandria in the New Testament, there's, it's always... A negative. You know, there's always um, there's always something, you know, a little bit off about that. Um, if I give you an example, go to Acts chapter 17. And we need to go here anyway to do a little bit of groundwork for the church at Ephesus. Acts chapter 17. Um, 17, 18... Chapter, let's go to chapter 18, verse 24. It says, Now there was a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. And this man was instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in the spirit. He spoke and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, And when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more what? Perfectly. All right. More perfectly. And when he was disposed, he passed into Achaia. And the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, whom when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. All right. So praise God for Aquila and Priscilla who were able to help Apollos go on to, you know, a more better understanding of the things of God. And we see that again with Paul. You've heard me preach that before when he said, what baptism are you baptized with? He said the baptism of John. He said, that's only a baptism of repentance. He preached Christ to them. They were baptized in the name of Jesus. And when they believed on the name of Jesus, he laid his hands on them. And then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. All right? So there is a a better way. And that's the kind of thing I want, a a perfect way, a more sure way. And you'll find through church history, going back to that map, there will always be this tear going on, or this tug of war, between Alexandria and Antioch. If you study church history, there's always this divide. The guys from the south are always a little bit more of a, you know, into into philosophy and kind of trying to massage the scriptures. We're up in Antioch, they're from the word. Um, Some of you may have heard about, uh, what is it called, Um, Arianism, which teaches that Jesus is not God, but he is the most um, highest created being. Colossians blows that argument out of the water. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe and the Mormons believe, that Jesus is a created being, but he's the highest created being. Okay, that's Arianism. Um, And it came from a a guy from Alexandria. All right, Origen, clement all of these weird doctrines that we have today and where most of our false religions come from they have a strong root in egypt in this area all right and that's why i'm bringing this up because jesus is going to talk about this to the churches all right so just remember there's this always this, this this tug of war between truth between the two cities of alexandria and antioch Amen. Praise God. All right, so let's just read the book, uh, the letter to Ephesus, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Praise the Lord. I'm doing pretty good getting through my Bible with one hand here. All right. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. You remember that identifier in chapter 1? He used that. Remember candlesticks there is more like a candelabra, all right? It's the it's the stand that the flame sits on. Amen. We're the stand, he's the flame. Amen. In the day of Pentecost, right? The flame sat upon them, didn't it? All right? We are the lamp stand. He is the oil that burns bright in us, praise God. So verse two says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and has borne and has patience for my name's sake, and have labored and have not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Praise the Lord. All right, so each one of these letters, they have a full, like a fourfold purpose, all right? They obviously are two individual churches that did exist, and there's plenty of research on this. Ephesus was an actual church, Um, that city was founded like in 1200 BC. Um, There's a lot of history on this this place. But we have to know that he was speaking directly to the group of people that were gathered, called Christians at Ephesus, because he says, look, to the church of or in Ephesus. All right, so he's writing to Ephesus, all right? But then look down at verse 7. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the what? Churches, Churches, plural. To the church in verse 1, to the churches in verse 7. These letters, the book of Revelation was like a cover letter. It was circulated throughout all the churches. All right. So it had a local level but it also had an admonition to all the other churches in the area too, all right? And then also look at verse seven. He that hath an ear. How many have ears in here tonight? All right? He that hath an ear. So it also has a personal application to us. It's not just for Ephesus. It's not just for those seven churches in Asia Minor. There is something in here for us personally, amen? Because he says, and look at verse seven, it says, to him that overcomes, all right? There's a promise in here to the overcomer, all right? Which we are. So it has a local level for Ephesus. It has a a kind of an admonition level for the churches in the area. It has a personal level, all right? And it also has a prophetic level, all right? Because we saw in verse seven, in, in chapter one, when he listed the seven churches, he listed them seven churches. You should put that map back on there. If you look at the, where those, air, those churches are at, they're not Jerusalem or Antioch, you know, or, you know, even Rome. Some of the big centers, some of the big cities where maybe a mega church would be, huh? You know, he's not writing to those cities, but he specifically picked out these seven. All right. And the really neat thing is if you're a church history guy, I love, I love history. I particularly love church history. um, The, the way these letters are stacked in the, these two chapters, it shows a prophetic picture of the history of the church. All right. Put that one, uh, the message of the church, a slide up there, hon. It's the black and white one that looks not that one. The There you go. You may or may not be able to see this very good, but I love this guy. This guy was, lived in the, uh, in the 1900s, and his name's Clarence Larkin. And um, he has a book called uh, The World's Greatest Book on Dispensational Truth. And this is all available on Blue Letter Bible. How many have ever visited that website, Blue Letter Bible? Raise your hand. There's like three people that have raised their hand. The rest of you need to visit Blue Letter Bible. It's probably one of the greatest Bible resources, all free, that we have if you you like to study. And all of these diagrams and and stuff like that and these charts are available, available on Blue Letter Bible. Just Google Blue Letter Bible. All right, and you can see here, that if you lay out the churches in in order, that's kind of hard to see. I probably probably could have tried to zoom in on that a little bit. But um, basically, Ephesus all the way down to Laodicea shows a picture of the history of church. Um, The Ephesus is to the apostolic age, probably about up to about 100 AD. Then you have Smyrna, which were the great persecutions of the church, about 250 years worth of church persecutions under um, the different Roman emperors. And then after that, we, you guys have ever heard of a guy named Constantine? Constantine came on the scene around 300 AD, 316, something like that. That's when the persecution ceased and the church began to get more um, kind of settled in the world. Um, then you have from 500 to 1500, the church at Thyatira uh, represents the papacy or, you know, the kind of the Catholic church in that era of time. Then you have the Sardis church, which speaks about the period of the Reformation. Um, and then you have Philadelphia, which is the sending church or the missionary church that came after that. You know, where there has been great um, uh, through probably you know, like the 1850s to our, you know, to now, there's been incredible, incredible movements um, that have sent the gospel all over the world. All right. And then the final church is Laodicea, um, which is the state of apostasy or the lukewarm church. All right. Now, it's interesting if you, if you study it out, it lays it out, pretty good. Some people don't buy into this kind of stuff. And, you know, like me, I, I kind of like it. You don't have to take it. I do the research as we see, as we go through the books, you'll kind of see how they do kind of line up with church history. All right. And we'll, we'll go more into that as, as we get in here. But another thing we need to understand about these letters is they're very precise. They're, they're all written um, in a certain order. If you can go to that chart there, hun, for me real quick. Um, how many sections of each letter do you think there is? How many numbers? Seven, seven that's right. There's seven, there's seven sections to the letter. The church name, we have a title of Christ um, that is given in each one, particularly in Ephesus. He said his title was, he that holds the stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the golden candlestick. Um, we have a commendation. In other words, there's a good report. Okay. It's kind of like a grade card the, these letters you know it's kind of like Jesus grading the church giving them a commendation, but then he has a concern all right and then then he kind of exhorts them to you know what they need to do and then there's a promise to the overcomer all right and that's where that he that hath an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches and then and so each letter has each one of these sections, except for what's interesting is if you look at a couple of these churches, particularly like Smyrna and Philadelphia, they get an A. There's nothing wrong with that church. There's no, he doesn't have anything, no concern, nothing bad to say about Smyrna or Philadelphia. Um, Funny enough, in Sardis and Laodicea, he doesn't have anything good to say about them. All right. Um, also, in, um, if you look at the last four, somehow or another, the Holy Spirit, he's decided to group up those last four by putting he that hath an ear, let him hear. He puts that in the middle you know, like, for instance, in Thyatira, he puts he that hath an ear, let him hear at the end of the letter. All right. Before what the promise that they will get, where in the first three, he puts it. You know, he says he that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit says. To the churches, and then he gives them the promise to the overcomer. And so the first three are kind of grouped that way and the last four are kind of grouped that way. And, and so that's kind of interesting. Um, you know, why has he done that? I don't know why. I have some ideas of why he might have done that. But it's interesting that they can be categorized like that. So just be aware of that as we go through the next couple of chapters that those, those, those are kind of the, the, the neat little peculiarities that are going on in, in these letters. All right. So praise God. So the first thing he says to the F, to Ephesus is he's given them a good report here he says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how they cannot bear them which are evil. All right. The other thing they've done is they've tried those false teachers and found them to be liars. Those that say they're apostles. All right. Um, Ephesus obviously was you know they drove out the wolves and it's interesting that that the people at Ephesus had this desire and they were good at smelling wolves and driving them out because that's what Paul said to Ephesus when he left all right when his final his final speech to the elders at Ephesus go with me back over to Acts chapter 18. And look what Paul tells them over here. Um, let's see. Um, it's gonna be going to be Acts chapter 20, verse 17. All right. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. And from Miletus, or Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Now, why did Paul go to this town instead of just sailing straight into Ephesus? Now, Ephesus was at one time the greatest shipping port in the Greek empire. But what happened, and you can check satellite images and you can see this, is because the Roman soldiers during their warfare, they had stripped the land of its timber and the land had begun to slide into the harbor and the whole harbor was filled full of silt and became unusable. And so Ephesus, which was at one time when it was first built, was right on the coast as a harbor. It's some 20 miles inland now today. And so that's why Paul, obviously, you couldn't sail into Ephesus anymore. So he pulled off into this town and he sent for the elders. And so in verse 18, it says, and when they were come to him, He said unto them, you know, from the first day that I came into Asia and after what manner I have been with you at all seasons. That's a good place to underline all seasons. You know, we have to be ready in all seasons. Amen. You've got to be ready. The gift of ministry that God has given you in your life. You can't just say I'm going to flow in that when times are good Or when the crowds are high or when their feelings are happy you've got to be able to minister in season and out of season man i was really proud of pastor today because that was a tough crowd at that funeral and man he preached the gospel pastor preached the gospel and he preached it good i mean he really preached the gospel good but that was a tough room and that was as kind of a hard funeral. And there was a lot of unbelievers, and there was a lot of people that just, you could tell they didn't want to be there. They didn't want to hear the preacher. You know what I mean? And you're not always going to get a crowd that wants to hear what you got to say. Right. Jeremiah didn't. But you got to be ready in season, all seasons. Amen? And so he said, verse 19... Serving the Lord with all humility of mind. That's a good man. Humility of mind. When we preach the gospel, when we show people the ways of the Lord, we can't do it in a way where we're puffed up. That we like got it all together. Amen. Because I don't have it all together. But for the grace of God, I'm a loser. That's the facts. And with many tears and temptations which befell me, by the lying in weight of the Jews. In other words, Paul, he went through it. There were, he, had lots, excuse me, he had lots of enemies. And you've heard me say before, if you're preaching the gospel properly, if you're really being obedient to the Lord, chances are you're going to make a few enemies. You're going to make a few people mad. Not everybody's going to like what you're doing. Amen. If everybody's saying well done and you're not getting anybody, you're not making anybody upset. Well, you need to check your message. Check what you're preaching. So uh, he said, I was in tears and I was tempted. That makes me, encourages me that even Paul goes through what what I go through. Verse 20, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. Now that is a great verse for church model, all right? Paul preached the word, held nothing back. He showed it publicly and house to house, amen? Me and brother Rick were talking about this. You got, the home Bible studies, man, are profitable. They were profitable in the 70s in the Jesus movement, and they're profitable today, all right? We should not turn our noses up at home Bible studies, all right, or whatever they call them nowadays, cell groups, live groups, whatever you want to call them, all right, I just call them home Bible studies. Because to be honest with you, you should be te- you should be opening up the Word and teaching the Word. You shouldn't be having life groups and everybody's playing Monopoly, watching The Voice. All right, that's not, that's not, that's not gonna, that's not gonna, that's not what Paul did. All right, Paul said he did what? He held nothing back, and he taught them. He taught them the word. He showed them the word. House to house, but publicly too, because we can't swing the other way like a lot of people are. They want to have house church. They want to do their own thing in the living room, but they don't want to come to the general assembly. They don't want to come to the Sunday meeting or the congregational meeting, you know, Paul always went to the synagogue and he always went house to house until they kicked him out of the synagogue, all right? And then when he went to the other town, he went to the synagogue, all right? The disciples in Jerusalem, it says they went to the temple and they went house to house, okay? You've got to have both. The scriptures teach both. The problem is is that the house movements against the church, the, the local Congregational Assembly and the Congregational Assemblies against the House Movement. And really, God has ordained both to function in the believer's life. All right? There's, it's, it really makes the church grow. And I, my prayer is, is that the Lord you know, brings back the power of the home Bible studies in these latter days. And that God would begin to soften people's hearts. And that people would not be afraid. Forget that COVID. Don't walk in fear. People need to be hospitable. There's a blessing when you're hospitable and you invite people into your house. Man, I don't you want people in your house praising the Lord, worshiping God, lifting up praises unto the Lord and the word being preached, the Holy Spirit falling and, and abiding in that place? What a beautiful thing for a home. What a sweet-smelling offering, okay? It's better than Febreze, I'll tell you. (laughs) So he did these things. He taught them publicly in house to house. And then verse 21 says, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks. He wasn't one-sided. He taught... Anybody that would show up, he taught them. He didn't say, sorry, this is just a Jewish meeting only. We're going to be talking about things of Israel, and I'll get to you Greeks later. We'll have a Greek meeting, and we'll talk about the things that pertain to the Greeks, you know. He didn't segregate. He taught them all. And he taught them all. The key to any teaching is repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Whew, I feel the Holy Ghost. If there's anything that I want to preach in my last days here on earth, this is the center of the message. We've been hearing it for Sunday since January. A Christ-centered message, man. A Christ-centered message that is repentance towards God and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you've heard me go on about it for years but there's too much humanism being taught in our sermons it's humanism yeah guy know i know there are things that i can do that make me uh, would make me a better person all right but really if i just get if, if i learn more about jesus if i learn more about the bible and his word you know he'll he'll tell me what i need to change and man one voice from the master Just one one word from his lips, it just melts you, man. It just it just changes you. We just need that more than anything. So in verse twenty two he says, and now so he's told him all this, so now behold, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem. Not knowing the things that will befall me there. Save or accept that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. Now this is, a, this is pretty wild. Everywhere Paul has gone, the Holy Spirit has warned him what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. But did he turn around? No. He still went. You see, the Lord can give you warnings about something just to give you insight of what, you will res- what will happen when you get there, all right? But it doesn't mean you turn around and quit. You just are prepared, amen? Jesus knew what was gonna happen to him at the Garden of Gethsemane, but he still went to Calvary. Verse 24 says, but none of these things move me. Why don't they move Paul? Why didn't Paul turn around? Because I count my life, I do not count my life dear unto myself, that I might finish my course with joy. Could Paul finish his course with joy if he thought, I better not go to Jerusalem, they're after me there. I better hang out here in Ephesus. No, because he'd be feeling, he knew he was supposed to go there, that he was afraid, so he didn't go there. That's not finishing your course with joy. You don't finish your course with fear. And by gum, we're not going to finish our course with fear, this church and these latter days, amen? I'm not finishing my course with fear. I'm finishing my course with joy. I don't care what the news says, okay? I don't care. People can stay in their house all they want, okay? I'm not. Because I'm finishing my course with joy. God has called the church to be a victorious church. God has called us to go into the earth and preach the gospel no matter what the costs. And you know those people that will pick up their cross and go when the Lord says go, even when they say, oh, you're going to die if you go over there. Oh, you're going to get COVID if you go out there. Oh, you're going to get malaria if you go over there. You know the people go and make a difference? The people who count not their life dear unto themselves. That's who goes. And he says, I go that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to what? To testify the gospel of the grace of God. Amen? We gotta testify the grace of God. If there's anything that our planet needs right now, it's the glory and the grace of God. Amen? They need the grace of God. Praise the Lord. So he says now, in verse 25, behold, I know that you all Behold now, I'm getting excited here. I got to get my tongue back. Here we go. Verse 25. And now behold, I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. In other words, he's saying, we have had good times in the Lord. Good times, bad times, hard times. We've done it all for the kingdom. But this is the last time I'm going to see you guys. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. In other words, I'm not accountable for your soul anymore. I have given you everything the Lord has given me to give you. Can I say that with my life? Can I say the things that God has told me? Hmm. I don't think there are bloods on my hands. I think I've said who I need to speak to and... I'm not sure I can say that right now. He says, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. In other words, I like what Pastor Chuck Smith says. He's with the Lord now out of Calvary Chapel. When he says, I have not held back or shun to declare. I've not shunned to declare. That's why we're in the book of Revelation tonight, because we're not going to shun to declare the whole counsel of God. Or some ministries may shun the book, shun the hard teachings. You know how Peter was a hard book to teach, man. There's some crazy stuff in that book. But hey, I know one thing. I can honestly say, I've not shunned that book. I've not shunned the whole counsel of God when it comes to that. In other words... You, God has given us 66 books, you know, and a good shepherd will teach the word of God, all 66 of them, through the hard, through the good, bad, and the ugly, amen? The whole counsel of God, you know. And so then he says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn every one of you night and day with tears. So it took him three years to go to teach them the whole counsel of God. And then verse 32, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. So Paul warns them, hey, you guys know everything you're supposed to know, but when I leave, you watch. Men are gonna come in here to try to draw men to themselves because they're greedy and they're going to speak perverse things. And so back in Revelation to the letter there, Jesus is commending them because these guys listened to Paul. They listened to Paul. They drove out the people that were coming in and trying to bring in bad doctrine, or people that were trying to say they were apostles and they were found liars. And Jesus commended them for it. And good job, Ephesians. Good job to stay uh, true to what Paul told you to do, all right? But there is something I have against you. So you've done a great job, but nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. It's kind of like you ever been, you ever been on a job and your boss brings you into the office and you're like, Hey, you've uh, man. Good job there today. I really appreciate what you're doing. And, uh, but there's just one thing I got to talk to you about. And you're like, oh, man, you know, you think, here, comes the, here comes the notice, man. Here comes the pink slip or, you know, I'm going to get the sack today. I can feel it, you know. It's like, you ever have that conversation? I know my kids think, that, hey, great job, Isaac. Uh, you did really good on your room. But there's just one thing I need to talk to you about, you know. And that's kind of what this feels like here. Great job, Ephesians. Way to, to, to stick to true doctrine, But nevertheless, I have something against you. Well, what is that, Lord? You have lost your first love because you have left your first love. And so Jesus is saying to us and to the Ephesians, you can be so dogmatic in trying to keep good doctrine and trying to work and teach, but you begin to be like Martha, and you lose your devotion. You see, what I see Jesus telling the church here is that, yes, I want pure doctrine, but I need devotion. And we can get so caught up in trying to teach and have good Bible, and I'm real guilty of this. This letter hits me between the eyes. But the Lord wants devotion. He wants personal devotion. And by the sound of it, it seems to me like He wants devotion over doctrine. You know, And we should be the first love, the first things of God. And we're out of time tonight, and we'll talk a little bit more about that um, when, we, when we meet again next week, okay? So praise God. So just remember these words, devotion over doctrine. Let's return to our first love and um, praise God. Let's pray.